welcome to episode 152 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my returning guest is the author Jacob Bacharach. He's joining me from Blacksburg in Montgomery County of the great state of Virginia. So glad to have you back on the pod, Jacob. It's great to be back, Jesse. Happy to be here. Our subject for today is Napoleon Bonaparte, a.k.a. Boney, a.k.a. the Little Corporal, a.k.a. the Corsican Fiend, a.k.a. the Enemy of Humanity. <laughs> We're going to be discussing a few cinematic Napoleons on this episode, focusing on two of them. The instant movie for dads classic Ridley Scott's Napoleon, starring Joaquin Phoenix and Vanessa Kirby as Josephine. And also a movie that Jacob encouraged me to watch that I had never seen and was knocked out by. 1970s Waterloo, starring Rod Steiger as Napoleon. How could I not enjoy a Italian-Soviet Union co-production with Dino De Laurentiis in charge? How, how could you not? It was a movie that I saw a long time ago and I only rewatched. Um, and I and I remember liking, um, but I only rewatched when we started talking about doing this episode, and and, and I was uh, blown away uh, all over again by it, um, by the just by the scope of it. Uh, unlike the Ridley Scott movie, it, it's pretty focused on a very, on a narrow period of time and on the Battle of Waterloo, so the immediate preceding events, and then the battle itself, and. Um, uh, the story of that production is incredible. I mean, they had they had like seventeen thousand Soviet soldiers who w went to Ukraine on behalf of Mosfilm, the, the Russian production company, uh, completely re-landscaped a giant field, planted crops there so that it would look like farmland, built fake historical buildings, and then served as the in costume extras. Still. So the the largest cast of extras uh, I think ever filmed for this massive, almost scale recreation of the battle. Also, not exactly historically accurate, but an incredibly technically uh, uh, impressive feat of filmmaking. I must warn you: I will not lead a second in command. I will win by fire. I am destined for greatness. I found the crown of France in the gutter and placed it atop my own head. Let's begin with a general discussion of Ridley Scott. Only a few days ago, he turned 86 years old. He shows no sign of retiring. And one thing you can say about the last few Ridley Scott movies is they don't look like the work of an 86-year-old man. No, and, and they've all been... Um, They've been wildly different too. I, I mean, the fact that House of Gucci and Last Duel came out in the same year is wild to me because it hard. I, they're both clearly Ridley Scott movies, but it's really hard to think of of two movies by the same director in such a compressed period of time being so very different from from each other. Um, and, you know, Napoleon is kind of, he's done a lot of big historic epics before, you know, he did Exodus, he did the, he's done Robin Hood, he did the the Crusades movie, he did 1492. Um, so this is kind of, I guess, in, in that tradition, in a way, I think almost more in that tradition than it is in the tradition of Gladiator, which was not really a, a war picture, except in the opening scenes. 
a lot of people, I think, were going into Napoleon expecting Gladiator. They're going to have to wait until Gladiator 2 to get a true follow-up <laughs> to that movie. Because Gladiator is about, you know, this this great general and great hero. And Napoleon is about this loser. Ridley doesn't really like Napoleon very much. That becomes clearer and clearer as the movie goes on. We'll get into the details of some of the reaction from the Greek statue Avi crowd <laughs> about this one. Uh, this is the thing that I really appreciated about Napoleon was that it was a gigantic historical epic about a guy for whom the director has contempt. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was interesting to see uh, the the way that he um, to see that become more and more clear over time. I mean, it's very much a a um, British, uh, specifically English, uh, view of Napoleon. Um, it 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 takes that sort of uh, Duke of Wellingtonian view of him as this kind of upstart uh, ruffian from the sticks and this little perverted sadist <laughs> and and a, uh, and a, a you know a jumped up little corporal who's gotten too big for for his britches. Um, and, and very deliberately, I think, it uh, ignores uh, non-military matters, uh, ignores some of the, the more successful uh, political and, and legal reforms of, of Napoleon in order to make it even uh, clearer, at least, that this character in the film, if not the historical uh, personage himself, is a weird little sex pervert whose uh, who's military prowess is 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 almost an, an accident born of the spite he feels towards the women in his life yeah. plural including his mother <laughs> <laughs> yeah she rolls in like an hour and a half into the narrative <laughs> I, I, she, she was great she gets was... introduced to josephine who's actually her daughter-in-law at a party <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah and then and then immediately uh forces her son to uh, to sleep with a prostitute to find out whether or not he's uh, he's actually uh, capable of producing an heir in in the funniest way possible. You know, she's kind of like co- coaxing it down the hallway towards the door. Come on, honey, she's right in there. Go go on ahead. Let's let let let's see see what you can do. <laughs> Which is such a funny thing to have the, the mom do. <laughs> it reminded me of that scene in Goodfellas where uh, De Niro's trying to get Lorraine Bracco to go look at some dresses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no. Just down there. Down there. Over Through there. the doors. The door. No, it's no, it's <laughs> fine. It's fine. Go. <laughs> Continuing on about um, Ridley bashing, which uh, I used to do myself. I... I, like many people, went through a period where I decided that Tony Scott was actually better than Ridley Scott, which I guess, if you number crunch, is true. Some people call Ridley Midley Scott because he's only made a handful of great films over a 50-year career, a director who peaked early with Alien and Blade Runner, two of my favorites. But, you know, he's gone all over the place ever since, and he's repeated himself a few times. Some feel that he's a commercial hack. Some feel that of the great auteurs of today, he's the one who's actually the least qualified to be <laughs> called an auteur. And many compare Ridley unfavorably to his late brother. I want to mention that Will Meneker, a mutual pal, cast scorn on Napoleon on Twitter this week. He said, there's a scene in Ridley Scott's Napoleon where Joaquin's Napoleon shows he's super horny for Josephine by going, 
me, mew, me, 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 meow, me, meow, me, meow, meow, and bouncing up and down. I don't mean this as an endorsement of this film. <laughs> to, to, too late, Will. That was an endorsement. If, if you go in with the right mindset. <laughs> I, I also like the scene where he, where, where he uh, stomped. And, and and did the the horny horse thing with, with his leg, which I thought was an inspired bit of physical acting, um, but by Joaquin Phoenix. Um, yeah, I, the the uh, the movie is is horny in a very very funny way. But but to to the to the broader Ridley question before we get more specifically into the horniness of Napoleon, I, you know I I. I tend to agree. I think, you know, a- averaged out across a career, uh, uh, Tony, Tony Scott's films are, are, are broadly better, uh, fewer, certainly giant stinkers than <laughs> Ridley has produced here, here and there. But I, I kind of look at Ridley almost as a, an older, an old fashioned kind of director, like almost like a, even though he's got his own production company and kind of just does whatever he wants these days, but, but almost in the tradition of an old kind of journeyman studio system director, you know, who, who just kind of bounces from genre to genre. I uh, will make a historical epic. Then we'll make a, a Thelma and Louise kind of road tragic comedy. Then we'll do a science, the big budget science fiction flick. Uh, then we'll do, uh, some you know something more of a, a, a drawing room comedy. I mean you know it's, it's it's like just kind of keeps doing these sort of genre films in all these different genres, and, and that's interesting to me. And I I always find even the bad ones I always like enjoy myself, even when I'm laughing at him and not with him. Um, I, I still I still like generally what I, what I see on the screen, um, mm-hmm. a couple of exceptions probably, but I, I, I think his career is just so, uh, fun and, and varied and, and he's not really snooty about the projects that he picks up. And I like that. Well, you know, like I was sort of dutifully watching Ridley's movies without enjoying them very much throughout his career. Like I don't see everything. I didn't see a good year, the movie, the rom-com that he did with Russell Crowe in France. And I didn't like, uh, I, I admired the filmmaking of Black Hawk Down, but I didn't like it very much. <laughs> and no. uh, I didn't like Prometheus very much. But strangely, I highly enjoyed Body of Lies with Leonardo DiCaprio and Russell Crowe. Did you ever get a chance to see that? Oh, yeah. No, I have seen, I have seen Body of Lies. I, 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 like, I like that movie. I, I mean, it, it's some problematic uh, aspects. In, in some ways... It, it almost it, there's a, a consonance with Black Hawk Down, like it, it's 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 sort of treatment of uh, American Empire, even in its skepticism in Body of Lies, is is a little bit problematic. Um, but uh, Russell Crowe playing the sort of like oleaginous CIA supervisor back at headquarters, and uh, and Leo just playing an operator in, in the last moment before he got a little too big to do that. Uh, all, all good stuff. Uh, I, I enjoyed that movie. I like when American movies kind of channel forties Warner brothers movies like Carlito's way. And I thought body of lies kind of felt that way to me too. 
Yeah. That he was making an old fashioned entertainment. And unfortunately, a lot of old fashioned entertainment has casual racism in it. <laughs> yeah. I, the movie that I really liked that really, the, of, of his, this kind of like late period of his, that actually sort of, that I actually do think is a, is a extremely well-made movie. And that sort of brought me back into rid, real Ridley um, fandom though, was all the money in the world. Yeah. Um, I, no, I'm biased because I have a personal uh, connection to that because I'm distantly related to one of the guys who kidnapped to get his grandson. <laughs> but I just thought it was a terrific movie. And I and the fact that he uh, reshot the whole thing after it turned out that uh, Kevin Spacey was a, a giant sex pervert, a Napoleonic style sex pervert, uh, yeah. is uh, is also a sort of feat of will and hubris that I, I respected a director. It only led to a two or three week delay in the release of the film. That's to me, that's miraculous that Ridley Scott immediately gets rid of Kevin Spacey, brings in Christopher Plummer, who was his first choice for the role anyway, films an extremely large amount of scenes again involving uh, Plummer, who uh, didn't have to wear as much latex uh, <laughs> all over himself because Kevin Spacey looked like one of the aliens from The Last Starfighter, <laughs> you know, with all the latex poured all over him. My only complaint about All the Money in the World is that I the dialogue seemed to have been written for Kevin Spacey to say, and Plummer saying it, I was like, God, I wish they'd done another rewrite. Yeah. Because they're trying to keep it sort of like bitchy the way that Kevin Spacey plays parts. Uh, but Plummer was incredible in it, and he was deservedly nominated for an Oscar for it. And when I finally caught up to it on Netflix, I was impressed. I didn't love it, but I thought it was very good and very well made. Yeah, I I I thought it was an impressive it was an impressive movie, and I it, uh, it the the way that it was shot too, the 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 color palette of it, uh, particularly like when we were w with Plummer, w with Getty in, in the mansion, you know, um, kind of had this sort of like the, this grandiosity and opulence combined with the sort of like um, uh, claustrophobia, the sort of like visual claustrophobia that I, I, I really, really liked. It, it, it was like, uh, felt almost haunted, even, even though it's obviously not anything like a ghost story. Or, or maybe it is kind of a ghost story. Maybe I'm wrong about it. I enjoyed it so much that I was willing to also overlook the tragic miscasting of Mark Wahlberg as a lawyer. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's limited, uh, to, 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 to say the least, but, uh, but that's okay. I, I didn't, I, I didn't mind all, all that much. It's that, that I could overlook that in, in an otherwise, I think, well-cast film. Well, it also had a guy I like, Romain Dury, from uh, The Beat That My Heart Skipped, was in All the Money. He was the uh, designated bozo in that film. Yeah. Like, he was the doing the bozo acting. Which, uh, yeah, which you've always, I mean, that's, and that's, uh, Ridley has an affection for bozo characters, too. <laughs> um, and uh, and Napoleon, <laughs> his most recent, is a perfect example of that, because, I mean, Joaquin is doing a bozo act. Um, it, it, it's, it is physically clownish. And I, like, I mean that in a good way. Like it's, it's just, it's comedic. The way he comports himself in every scene is, is very, very funny. And, and, um, and, and unexpected because it's completely at odds um, with, I think what, 
what yeah the the history twitter uh, uh roman bust abby kind of kind of guys uh would think about when they think about this like wor- world world bestriding uh, uh general um mm-hmm. but whether you think of napoleon as being like you know alexander the great reborn or you think of him as being like a, a presentiment of hitler to come you know the thing is like those were also uh, Alexander and, and Hitler were also, and Julius Caesar, they were all kind of creepy little uh, uh, sex weirdos with off-putting personalities, even though they managed to, you know, win, win you know, the loyalty of their of their armies and their societies. Uh, so I, I think portraying Napoleon as this kind of idiosyncratic uh, g- goofball is is kind of an inspired choice. And, and actually I thought that Rob Steiger kind of did as well in Waterloo. Like he does, he, he also, it's not as kind of perverse sexually um, as the Ridley Scott uh, version of Napoleon, but he also uh, kind of oh, vacillates between this sort of like almost comical operatic grandiosity and this like very like, picayune bitchiness about little frustrations. Uh, so I, there's a kind of consonance between those two performances, I think. One other thing that's cool about Ridley Scott still going at age 86 is that he's doing that thing that Clint Eastwood has been doing for 30 years, which is it looks like he's about finished. <laughs> you know, <laughs> He was so inspired by Barry Lyndon that he decided to leave uh, the world of commercial production in England and switch over to being a film director. And he made a movie that owed a great deal to Barry Lyndon. So when he made The Last Duel, I was like, okay, he's wrapping it up full circle. And then he made House of Gucci. And now he's made Napoleon, which is another (laughs) film that's set in historical France on an epic scale that also uh, owes a lot to Barry Lyndon. But now he's making Gladiator 2. And next, (laughs) it sounds like he's making Blood Meridian. He's doing an unnamed Western but everybody thinks that it's Blood Meridian. Oh, that's interesting. Well, so I didn't realize that The Counselor, Cormac McCarthy wrote the screenplay, I think, for The yes. Counselor. <laughs> Speaking of wild departures yeah. uh, from, from one's uh, uh, usual style. Gladi- I mean, I, I, I'm going to see Gladiator 2. Uh, we were chatting a little bit before, I think before we started recording about some of the movies that like... Uh, Ridley didn't really direct it. He's listed as a director and, and, and you suggested that maybe alien covenant, um, uh, was, was another one. So maybe he's going to let someone else do the grunt work on the, on the, uh, sequel to, to the film that he actually did. Yeah. Rumor has it that Luke Scott, one of his sons, who's a second unit director, secretly directed Exodus, gods and Kings and alien covenant. But, uh, I would believe that based on alien covenant, it doesn't really have the juice of a Ridley Scott movie. It doesn't, although it has uh, one of the great uh, unintentional laugh out loud in, in the theater moments that I've ever experienced, which was when, <laughs> which was when they, uh, um, Michael Fassbender, they get the ship to the planet of the giant uh, bald aliens who started aliens and also maybe started all life on Earth, and he like. Opens the Bombay doors like it's a of the spaceship, like it's a World War II uh, bomber epic, and uh, and then they and then the camera kind of pans down, and all of these kind of like uh, rubber masked and/or CGI big bald aliens all just like look up at the sky, like open mouthed as the as the 
bombs started raining down. And, and the whole theater that I was in just burst out laughing at, at that moment. And I hope that we get at least one of those in Gladiator 2. I want to read you something funny uh, from this New Yorker profile with Ridley, where he was talking about how he's already half finished editing Gladiator 2 because they filmed a lot of it before the strikes set in and they're going to go, I, they must be back in production by now. He's been editing the sequence uh, that I'm sure that you're looking forward to seeing as much as I am uh, seen in Gladiator 2 where Paul Mescal is fighting off an attack by some wild baboons. <laughs> and uh, Scott had been haunted, he said, by a video of baboons attacking tourists in Johannesburg. Scott says, baboons are carnivals. Can you hang from that roof for two hours by your left leg? No, a baboon can. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that it's, uh, there, there's something funny about Ridley Scott having, um, uh, something funny about Ridley Scott having more, uh, respect for the martial prowess of baboons in Johannesburg than he does for the uh, Grand Army of the French Republic under Napoleon in the first in the first empire. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's aiming to get this movie done in about fifty days, which is incredible. Napoleon only took sixty-two days to make, uh, considering all the uh, location work and all the sets. And uh, how do you do that in sixty-two days? The secret is you have ten or eleven camera people running around at once. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, but it's still impressive because I mean, you, you compared him to, you compared him to Clint, but I mean, these are not Clint Eastwood movies, you know, I mean, Clint, Clint, you, you know, you get a front porch and a, uh, and a vintage car and do everything in one take and you can finish a movie 30 days or however long <laughs> yeah. it takes. And, but yeah. like, these are mon. I, I mean, the, the, while not to the same scale as the 1970 Waterloo, uh, nonetheless, the the staging of the of the combat scenes in in this Napoleon, for example, was uh, hugely complex. Um, largely looked like it was using extras. It didn't look like there was a lot of a, a lot of um, FX to, to to swell the numbers. And, um, uh, and and in some of the scenes, like in in Ridley's version of of Waterloo um, to, at at the end of the film. Um, some really complicated, like extra choreography, like stuff like that takes a really long time. Getting those guys trained and drilled to do, while not necessarily historically accurate, at least sort of like realistic maneuvering on a giant battlefield uh, as part of the production of these combat scenes is uh, a crazy thing to think about in a space of, you know, th three months, two months. The two most impressive battle sequences in Ridley's Napoleon were the first one, where Napoleon gets his uh, gets his uh, what do you call it his license to kill <laughs> when he gets uh, his the horse gets killed with a cannonball and he's uh, actually terrified. He's supposed to be twenty four years old at that point. You don't believe that because he's four, clearly in his late forties. But that was a pretty amazing scene and especially impressive was the battle of Austerlitz on the ice lake uh, with all the cannonballs puncturing the ice and all the bodies getting uh, destroyed. That was a really, really spectacular sequence. Yeah. Um, uh, not historically accurate, but based on a story, like a real story that, that came out of the, that came out of that battle uh, about, uh, about the ice um, uh, subsequently kind of like, I think written off as being more, 
rumor and exaggeration than something that really happened. But but yeah, really really visually stunning, and and um, and, and, uh, and visceral. I mean, you know, like the the there's one scene. All of the horses and men, kind of when the ice starts to break up under bombardment, g- going into the water is is pretty harrowing. But there's one moment where they show a couple of um, a couple of soldiers trying to climb back onto a piece of broken ice and just just slipping off. I mean, it's ice. This is like nothing to hold on to. Um, and and it was, I, I mean, like. Drowning is a horrible way to go, and it was just a, a really kind of viscerally scary thing to to watch on the on the screen. I enjoyed that the battle at Toulon, that opening sequence. Um, again, took a lot of liberties with the historical record. What I thought it did really well, and I, and I think this is maybe the one of the few moments where the film actually sort of grapples with the fact that Napoleon obviously did have some some talent was kind of the way it visually conveyed him showing up assessing the availability of materiel um, uh, kind of recasting all the weapons because Napoleon was he wasn't a cavalry guy he was an artillery officer he was one of the reasons he was successful is because he was good at math and he understood the trajectories for artillery and he knew how to make how to how to put good cannons into production and uh and so kind of showing doing that little process montage before the actual battle scene takes place where he sort of marshals all the guys that he has and they scope out where they're going to attack and they recast all the cannons and they sort of set the plan in motion it's almost like a like a heist movie kind of within the broader scope of the movie and i thought it was i thought it was cool and i i uh, and, I, and then, you know, the battle scene that followed was also, you know, pretty visceral and bloody. And, uh, well, man, did everybody in the theater definitely gasp when they uh, cannoned that fucking horse. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Weird. I was like, <laughs> I, I knew that that happened. Like, I knew that happened because he really did have a horse shot from out under him with a, with, with a cannon, I think, at that battle. But I, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> yeah. Now contrast that with some of the treatment of horses in 1970s Waterloo. Oof. I was cringing a little bit. There were some scenes where some horses are supposed to look like they're wounded and you can tell that they shot them up with something. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's not cool. <laughs> no, no. That was that, that movie was made uh, just a little bit before people started uh, worrying about the treatment of animals on set. I mean, there were some... In, in some of the like cavalry uh, activity in that movie too, um, uh, uh, some of those horses did not. Those were real horses that were not going down in a healthy way when they were when they were mm-hmm. uh, falling during uh, during the charge. Uh, it, that was a little disturbing. Dans mon esprit tout divin, je me perds dans tes yeux, je me noie dans la vague de ton regard amoureux. Je ne veux que ton âme. Let's uh, do a sidebar here. I want to talk about some good Napoleons in movies. Ironically, there aren't very many examples in French cinema of great Napoleons. Most of the Napoleon depictions on screen have been outside of France. Yeah, it's it's uh, uh, interesting that uh, he hasn't cast a wider... Uh, shadow across um, French cinema. It's 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 not that the French don't make 
um, uh, historical movies, although I, I do suspect that there is an element of um, an element of money involved, I guess, an element of budget. I, you know, it, it, it would, it's hard to imagine doing a, a, a feature film about Napoleon without um, staging massive battle scenes. And, and even though the French, um, you know, film industry is, is relatively well funded and, and, and uh, the domestic audiences are, are, are pretty big, movie making at that scale um, is maybe not something that um, th that the French film industry is is really uh, as capable of as the sort of Anglo-American film industry or um, the uh, the weird case of the 1970 Waterloo where um, for whatever reason the Soviet Union just decided to uh, kick in an incredible uh, an incredible amount of, of money. Um, uh, although to be fair, the Soviet, the Soviet Union and the Russians in general um, have uh, certainly plenty of historical reasons to um, revel in producing a massive film about the uh, final defeat of their uh, second or third worst adversary, depending on yeah. uh, where where you rank him uh, against the uh, the uh, uh, Mongolians and against Hitler, and then there's Napoleon. So the Russians have kind of they've had a few big baddies, and th those I think are probably the top three. Well, there's the famous incomplete work in the silent era from Abel Gantz, the five and a half hour Napoleon film, which was supposed to be even longer and uh, still survives today. Hilariously, in this uh, Ridley Scott interview in the New Yorker, he says, "I couldn't get through it, honestly." <laughs> Which is sort of how I feel about it. I've tried watching it too. It's, it's technically interesting, but there's so much of it. Yeah, that's that's a lot of silent uh, film to to uh, sit through. Uh, my father claims that one of the first um, dates that he and my mom went on um, was actually to go and see a screening of that at the art uh, cinema in the in their college town back back in the seventies with a live orchestra playing playing the score. Mm -hmm. And my uh, mother claims to have. Uh, absolutely no recollection of this um, ever having occurred. So I, <laughs> I can't verify the historic details there. But it was I, I, I mentioned to uh, I mentioned to them that I was uh, going to be recording an episode talking about Napoleon, and my my dad told me that story, and then my mother said that never happened. <laughs> um, my favorite Napoleon performance on screen is Ian Holm in Time Bandits. To me, that's like the gold standard of Napoleon on screen, even if he's only in it for 10 minutes. Yes. Uh, Napoleon or Napoleon-like uh, characters in uh, weird time travel comedies uh, are, are are some of the top, uh, the, the top versions. Um, it, and also, you know, again, I, I played for laughs. Uh, you know, there there is actually a kind of grand tradition of you know uh, of of Napoleon uh, as a comical character, and even the rumors about him, you know, from 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 the actual Napoleonic era right through today, like that he was like this tiny little, you know, this puffed up, basically a, 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 a like a little person, um, uh, are you know were were. Uh, propaganda from his enemies at the time, but always cast him in this kind of um, this kind of co comical, um, perverse uh, role. Um, very much at odds, you know, with his, uh, you know, with his obvious uh, military and, po and political successes. So I, I think it's a long narrative tradition of 
portraying Napoleon as, as being a, a, a kind of a bit of a weirdo. Yeah. In, in Time Bandits, Napoleon is an alcoholic who is also not listening to any of his generals who are, uh, you know, it, it takes place during the Italian campaign. And our heroes from Time Bandits show up at a sort of a puppet show that's like a, it's not vaudeville back then. What was the term for theater back then? Did it have Yeah, a, I would, it, yeah. Like pantomime, is it? Pa- pantomime or comedia, maybe. Uh, it, uh, that's probably a little earlier. But but yeah, so they've got some bearded ladies who are really tall and Napoleon's really pissed off and the guy backstage is about to kill himself and then suddenly all the the time bandit guys all show up and they go on stage and perform for him and start beating each other up and Napoleon is so thrilled. <laughs> he feels seen in that scene, you know? And he goes backstage and hires them all to be his generals and they have this really funny scene where they're all at a candlelight dinner and Napoleon's just itemizing all the great heroes of history and what their heights were. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that's the the finest portrayal of Napoleon I've ever seen. Uh, a, a special shout out to t- Terry Camilleri in Bill and Ted, one mm-hmm. of the only on-screen Napoleons who actually speaks French in his performance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we were, we were chatting chatting earlier. Yeah, him and the cartoon Napoleon in, in Bugs Bunny, who doesn't speak much French, but does does say a, a few uh, a few words. Um, and there's a great. That's not the finest era of Looney Tunes, but actually there are a couple of pretty good gags. It, it's only a seven minute short, and um, e- even the title sequences, like you you see this kind of gate that goes into you know the chateau where Napoleon is. And the title comes up and it says, Head Courtier du Napoleon. And then underneath, a translation comes up and it says, Headquarters of Napoleon. <laughs> Very funny. And Bugs Bunny arrives at his uh, estate thinking that he's at a movie theater and the, the <laughs> guards are the doormen. Yes. <laughs> the, usher. The, the guards are the ushers. Yes. And uh, he starts giving Napoleon some free advice on where to put his troops. <laughs> And Mel Blanc really, really leans into it with uh, his shitty French uh, accent. Oh, uh-huh. it's so good. Yeah, yeah. And, and it has the classic uh, ending where Napoleon gets uh, hauled away by the guys with the butterfly nets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm with Napoleon. Jo- I'm Napoleon. And the, one of them says, sure you are. <laughs> I, I, I know I've, I've made this joke to you before. I probably made this joke on Twitter before. But I, I did think that Ridley missed an opportunity by not um, uh, taking a page from House of Gucci and having everyone in this movie perform in a Pepe Le Pew accent. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that could have, been, uh, could have been something truly, truly special. Now, do you think that uh, Ridley was taking a dig at Napoleon's Corsican heritage by casting mostly Brits as the French and the Brits, but then casting an American <laughs> as, as Napoleon? Yeah, that's uh, 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 I, and the casting of Frenchmen as the um, Tsar of Russia. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> which actually makes sense because probably the court language um, at that time was still French. So in all in all likelihood, <laughs> Alexander probably spoke French uh, spoke French quite well. Um, yeah, uh, p- uh, possibly. Uh, I I was actually kind of a little sad that the the movie, um, it, you know, it starts basically, it starts at, at the French Revolution um, with a kind of concocted scene where where Napoleon sees 
Marie Antoinette get her head chopped off. Um, that didn't, he wasn't there, but, um, Napoleon's early like revolutionary activities, um, were really interesting. He had already been a kind of, um, uh, he had been a, a, a partisan for Corsican independence from France. He was born only like a year or two after, after France took over the administration um, of Corsica. Um, and he, you know, he traveled in these kind of Corsican nationalist and, uh, circles and, and was kind of a, a, a radical uh, resistor of French rule. But then when the revolution happened, he, um, he became a, a French revolutionary and sort of changed tacks and, and switched sides uh, he, he, he obviously had some talent for knowing which way the wind was blowing. And, um, and there's a lot of great stuff from that, from that period of his life, um, including his first, uh, courtship, uh, his, his really weird, um, habit of writing romantic novels, <laughs> all, all, all this kind of strange stuff that he did as a young man before he really became Napoleon. And uh, I, I would have, enjoyed seeing uh part of the problem is maybe Joaquin Phoenix is just too old to to realistically play him at that at that age but I would have enjoyed seeing him seeing him try I thought at the beginning when Marie Antoinette was being led to the guillotine uh, that she looked a little bit like Vivian Westwood there was sort of this uh 70s <laughs> punk rock <laughs> ethos and I was kind of hoping there'd be more of that in the movie yeah, that's that's true. She was she was quite uh, she was quite stylized, and the, and and the slow motion walk as she's being pelted with rotten All this vegetables food landing on her uh, yeah. was <laughs> like I that I kept expecting there there were a couple of really funny uh, music cue needle drops in the in the previews, and that was one where I would have I would have really liked a uh, Sofia Coppola style. Uh, uh, contemporary hit to to drop. I, I think that might have been the moment for it. Yeah. Well, this was what made me laugh so much about the marketing of Napoleon and then watching the film because, uh, you know, this will be segue into our uh, a little chat about some of the history buffs' reactions <laughs> to this movie is that it was marketed in a bait and switch kind of way. They made it look like this big epic two hour movie about a badass with uh, War Pigs by Black Sabbath on the soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, as if it was like the new Thor movie. <laughs> <laughs> Ridley missed an opportunity to have like a death metal version of Waterloo by ABBA over the... <laughs> Actually, what a brilliant mar marketing ploy! Um, because I mean, the, the movie's doing great, and I think, but I think that that marketing campaign, you know, w was the thing that was going to get more of a mass audience in, in to see in to see the movie. You know, um, it will make it look like a big a battle epic, which it is in parts, and um, and 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 get yeah all of the guys. Uh, all the different types of guys, uh, and get them all get them all in there. And they definitely uh, tricked a lot of 
uh, classical bust Twitter guys um, who who are are really really mad, and which is so funny because so many of those guys, you know, pr- sort of propose themselves as being these like. Um, in the line of an unbroken conservative tradition from like Demosthenes through Ed through Burke. <laughs> and it's like Napoleon was, I mean, before he became the emperor, he was a revolutionary. He was many things, but he was not a conservative. I mean, even things that he did that conservatives would like these days, like reinstituting slavery in Haiti. Um, <laughs> he, like he was a, a, a wrecking ball to the historical order. He left no institution anywhere that he went untouched or unchanged. And, and these guys who, who think that we should be back in the fucking uh, school of Athens sucking Plato off uh, are, are, are like uh, suddenly upset because a commercial movie depicted the, the most radical political force perhaps in the history of Europe before the 20th century as as kind of a little weird. It's so dissonant. <laughs> the other thing that was so funny about the trailer and, and you know, Ridley Scott's wit is at the end of the trailer, it has this voiceover over this battleground footage and Napoleon says, I'm the first to admit when I make a mistake, I simply never do. <laughs> and that's totally badass. But in the context of the movie, it's in the last 10 minutes where he says this to a bunch of English kids and fanboys who are on board the HMS Bellerophon while he's eating breakfast after surrendering. Uh, yes. Yeah, indeed. And, and then and then immediately goes on to get viciously domed by by R- Rupert Everett, they they <laughs> defrosted him uh, and uh, from whatever uh, Madonna estate sensory deprivation chamber he was in, uh, and made him the made him Wellington, and he and he would and he played it. He really handed up um, at, in a in a way that I really appreciated. And him kind of coming in and Napoleon saying, I've always wanted to live in the Welsh countryside, rolling hills and green. <laughs> he says, Frank, you know, frankly, that would be quite impossible. That's you know, really funny. <laughs> yeah, it was sort of kind of curb your enthusiasm ending. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Like... <laughs> yeah, you, you, uh, somebody absolutely, uh, w- once, this is, once this is out uh, on streaming, needs to cut that out and put the curb theme over it. Because... <laughs> <laughs> it it is it truly is that uh, that kind of moment. Um, Rupert Everett was uh, uh, I thought it the kind of inspired uh, inspired casting choice there. I want to read to you a really really funny apoplectic reaction to Napoleon <laughs> from one of those sort of history buff nerds. The the you know on YouTube the movie reviewers the ones who publish a new video every three days about how much they hate Brie Larson and stuff like that. <laughs> These people were very excited about Napoleon, especially since they got the Black Sabbath trailers. Uh, so the return crowd spelled with a V <laughs> were, were, felt really hurt uh, when they, when they watched this film because Scott portrayed their boy, Napoleon played by the Joker, no less, as a cucked loser who's prone to temper tantrums and failure. So this guy said, Napoleon Bonaparte was an ultra-charismatic, incredibly intense man who had boundless energy and ambition. 
and you wouldn't know any of that by watching this movie. Phoenix's Napoleon was childish and whiny and melancholy and unstable and weak, purposefully portraying Napoleon without his undeniable charisma and magnetism is nothing short of defamation. <laughs> it's like, well, first of all, it's, listen, buddy, it's he's not, not he's not going to fuck you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's and also you're very close to getting it, dude. You know who else is childish and whiny? <laughs> <laughs> uh, why am I made so uncomfortable? What, what's so uncomfortably familiar about this about this portrayal? Well, like, uh, imagine watching this movie and feeling personally hurt by the portrayal of, of, of Napoleon yelling, you think you're so great because you've got boats and storming out of the room. The thing is, I mean, you know, I mean that like, that's a very funny line. That was definitely one of the laugh out loud lines in, in the theater. Um, but there's an element I think of, you know, underlying historical truth there because Napoleon was actually, I mean, the French fleet was destroyed at Toulon before Napoleon ever took it back, or, or largely so. Um, and, and Napoleon was all, always was deeply conscious uh, uh, about British superiority, uh, British naval superiority, and was it, Napoleon had plans to try to invade England, but it was never going to happen. They were never going to be, be able to successfully do that because they would have to engage the, the British at sea, and his. His continental ambitions were in part driven by by the fact that he he couldn't uh, he, he couldn't go west. I mean, even his invasion of Egypt was was about trying to uh, create trade routes to India and try to uh, and to try to begin to undercut uh, 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 British influence uh, in the in the subcontinent. Um, and uh, in fact, there's an episode from early in Napoleon's life where I think he even at one point considered going to work for the British East India Company. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and you know, and these guys, uh, this is you know, again, I'll dispute with our with our mutual friend Will here again. I mean, at least early in his relationship with Josephine, um, uh, Napoleon was uh, was deeply cocked. I mean. He, he had loverisms as well. The portrayal of him as, as being like sexually inexperienced and inadequate in the movie is, is definitely a, a, a stretch. But like when he was on the Italian campaigns, he, he was writing these incredibly florid letters back to Josephine all the time. She would just like not reply to him. She was shacked up with this this junior officer, Hippolyte Charles, who was this kind of like little, he, like the Timothy Chalamet of the French military establishment. <laughs> and, and then eventually he kind of like demands that she, that she come and join him in Milan. So she goes with this entourage, brings Hippolyte Charles with her. And then the two of them basically go town hopping around Italy, like always staying one step ahead of Napoleon and, and like leaving the day before he arrives while he's like begging her, why are you doing this to me? Please, please come back. <laughs> yeah. I want to read you a very funny uh, excerpt from one of Napoleon's many letters to Josephine that were not answered. <laughs> <laughs> that that scene in the movie where we hear Phoenix uh, voiceover reading one of the letters, like, why haven't you written me? And then they cut to her having sex <laughs> with some guy. I, I, I was thinking of that moment in Taxi Driver where Travis is in the hallway on the payphone. <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> it was like, it was just so sad. Um, and then one of his generals walks into his tent and just tells him that his wife is banging <laughs> other guys. And, and that's the excuse the movie gives for him leaving Egypt was to go talk to his wife. And, and he confronts her and says, you're nothing without me. And then she takes him into another room. And then she says, you're nothing without me. Say it. And then he's like, I'm nothing without you. Like, he's like, it's completely cucked. <laughs> I just thought of all the Greek statue guys just losing their shit. at uh, the humiliation. But in this letter that he wrote to Josephine, I have to read you this. It's so funny. He says, if I depart from you with the speed of the rushing Rhone, it is only so that I may see you again more quickly. If I get up in the middle of the night to work, it is because this may hasten by some days the arrival of my sweet love. Yet in your letter of the 23rd and the 26th (laughs) Ventos, you address me as Vu, Vu yourself. Ah, wretched woman, how could you have written this letter? It is so cold. And then there are four days between the 23rd and the 26th. What were you doing? Because you were not writing to your husband. Ah, my love, that vu and those four days make me long for my former indifference. Woe to the person responsible. Hell has no torments great enough, nor the fury serpents. Vu, vu, ah, what will it be in two weeks? For context, vu is the formal version of two. Two is what you say to your lover. Vu is what you say to some somebody that you know. It, and no, so that really got him. It, oh, it, it, and it's so funny too because it, there's <laughs> just like the tone of it. I mean, you could absolutely imagine, you, you know, a, a contemporary, you, you know, like. Uh, uh, Fleischman is in trouble Hulu miniseries where like somebody's <laughs> wife comes home like uh, 30 minutes late, you know, and he's suspected. Yeah. You stayed late at the gym tonight, honey. Huh? She says, yes, Jerry. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. So, I mean, you know, he's getting cocked so hard in this film. Uh, also the sex scenes are completely unsexy. He's just, running behind her and then he says that hopefully my cock work will result in a child yes <laughs> we've, we've, we've done ah uh, we did good work there <laughs> yeah. we'll look on on vanessa kirby's face uh because because they always they always shoot her from the front it's it's very funny because it is uh very like internet porn sex tape coded they they, yeah. they you it's always a, a woman's face to the camera and him pumping away back there and just the like it, it she I, I i like what kirby does because she, she, she doesn't it's not exactly disgust and it's not and it's not boredom and it's not like you know fear or pain it's it is absolutely the look of like uh an, an office worker just like writing that last email before they leave before they can leave for the day i like i think she does some really great great face work in those scenes yeah but the sex scene with with napoleon and josephine reminded me of that thankfully brief shot of uh, philip baker hall and magnolia railing his girlfriend <laughs> <laughs> just so depressing um i also thought the you think you're so great because you have boats scene uh, I was. I said to my friend that it's uh, Ridley Scott's Clifford. Oh, <laughs> I, I, I don't. Every time we, every time we talk, we get derailed and end up talking about Elon Musk, and I don't want to get us there too fast. But I will say one of the things that I did think about as I was watching this movie and like thinking about the parallels 
parallels between uh, our our modern day Napoleon, <laughs> our lesser Napoleon, and, and the real guy. Um, and and watching this portrayal was it was like you know N- Napoleon is like a guy who who did have a lot of sex and ended up having you know having children and and uh, and, and and descendants around to this day. But he's but also like this portrayal of him as a guy who's like had sex but has somehow never had sex despite having had sex is something that I I always think about when I when I think about like Elon, like he's, he's got kids, he's definitely had sex with women, but everything about him and the sort of his own self portrayal suggests the guy who's, who's never had sex. Yeah. Uh, well, and Napoleon, um, just like, uh, Tony Soprano as Napoleon, Elon also, uh, promised somebody that he wanted to have sex with a horse too. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> What, what, a, what a funny thing to offer a person. <laughs> yeah. There's something specifically funny about offering to buy someone a horse while you're on an airplane. I, I, I don't, I don't know what it is, it, 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 like, but it's just like a, a 19th century mode of transportation while you're hurling through the sky in a, in a metal can. is just really funny to me. Well, only today, uh, Somebody got Elon very excited by sending him an AI picture of him dressed as Napoleon with the words, go fuck yourself as a tribute to that complete Waterloo that Elon experienced a few days ago where he had that meltdown at that, at that conference. Yeah. A very, uh, a very Joaquin Phoenix as Napoleon kind of, kind of meltdown too. Um, yeah. You, you, where, where you can see yeah, a, a, a person for whom, a person uh, accustomed to command, you know, s- surrounded basically by people whose job it is to to agree with him, uh, and a person who can get titanically angry and, and and wildly disproportionately offended by any any little detail that doesn't go his way, any, any question that um, doesn't sort of already presume his answer. Um, it, 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 I mean the. There is a reason why we have the phrase Napoleon complex, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, this was like, this is, this has been something people have thought about Napoleon and something that people have applied to a particular type of man generally with a particular sense of his own power for, for, for quite a long time. Um, and there's a reason why that, uh, you, you know, became a diagnosis and, be, and has become a trope. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, watching watching Musk, who also like Napoleon, you know, has kind of become looking ever more haggard, unhealthy, and bizarre. Uh, uh, it, it as he's as he's acquired more power and prestige. Uh, watching him eat, eat shit uh, in front of the friendliest, most ill prepared interviewer than he could possibly have ever hoped for uh, yeah. was. Uh, really really something what was that trip like and obviously you know that there's a public perception that and and you're clarifying this now um but there's a public perception that that was part of a apology tour if you will that this had been said online there was all of the criticism there was advertisers leaving we talked to bob i hope they stop you hope Uh, don't advertise you don't want them to advertise no what do you mean if somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go f*** yourself. But 
Go yourself. Is that clear? I hope it is. Hey, Bob, if you're in the audience. Well, well let me ask you then. That's how I feel. Don't advertise. The other thing that I want to say about Elon, too, is that he was dressed as a sort of an eight-year-old's idea of a cool cool guy. <laughs> he was wearing that black jacket with the, the furry the furry collar. But he reminded me, actually, of Lady Gaga in the final act of House of Gucci. Oh, yeah, yeah, for, for sure. Uh, absolutely. Um, he's always in House of Gucci. Um, there are there are some um, funny moments in the final act uh, act of the film um, where, like Lady Gaga meets a- Adam Driver's um, uh, uh, ski bunny aristocratic um, new girlfriend, and and where she, as at a couple of other moments in, in the film, is sort of revealed as this. Um, parvenu who doesn't like have the same sort of like high society social cues as as people who are more to the manner born and and that's also something that's always sort of um struck me about about elon is like he he has this obvious kind of deep well of insecurity about uh, other rich and powerful people um and and very clearly is like is upset that he thinks you know that that they're sneering at him and looking down at him, but then can't help but give them more reason to sneer at him and look down at him. Um, and 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 Napoleon had some of that going on too because you know he was I mean he was kind of from the nobility but not not really. Um, and he you know he kind of it came to power and in an 18th and 19th century Europe that just weren't going to take him seriously, even if he did manage to build a lot of stuff. Um, it, it just, he, how, how could he, he, he couldn't escape it. I mean, that's half the reason they all kept lying against because they were just like this, this Corsican intriguer has taken over, has taken over France. We, we got to do something about this. I laughed in that scene where uh, somebody informs Napoleon that they they call him the Corsican thug <laughs> uh, in in high society. And earlier that day was that moment in the trial of young thug, where his <laughs> lawyer uh, explained that thug actually means truly humbled under God. <laughs> <laughs> More Napoleonic complex shit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I I did like that. Uh, it's just, we just again thinking about uh, partly about Gaga and accent work in, in Ridley Scott movies. I did like that. I I don't know who the actor was who played the Pope um, in mm-hmm. Napoleon, but I did like that they get, that it, he had a very uh, a clear Italian accent. Like no, everybody else in the movie speaks with either a British or American accent, except for the Tsar of Russia who speaks with French accent because he's a French actor. And then the, I presume Italian actor who plays the Pope. I really liked that scene. I mean, it was so, uh, Ridley was so clearly trying to emulate the paintings of the period of Napoleon. But uh, I, I did like the, uh, the moment where he uh, puts the crown on his own head, which was very scandalous <laughs> at the time. Uh, it, but he also kind of uh, felt like, um, Kim Jong Un kind of behavior. <laughs> uh huh. Well, I mean, there's something about the. Uh, there's probably something to that historical comparison because I mean, he really was that did kind of, um, you know, uh, 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 took over the country uh, as an avatar 
of of a kind of um, revolutionary ideology, right? Which is not all that dissimilar to the to 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 what happened in in Korea and North Korea, uh, and and then sort of created this um, uh, sui generis um, uh, monarchy of, of his own house, of his own family, um, and. and 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 also <laughs> kept putting his relatives in charge of all kinds of stuff. I mean, he made one of his brothers the king of Spain, which was like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and then the Peninsular War happened, and the, and and the War of Spanish Independence. But um, you know, he 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 put his partly maybe just to keep an eye on them, but he was not above uh, putting his his uh, relatives and progeny and positions of power when his son was born he he named him the king of rome i think it's like a crazy man (laughs) but uh napoleon's sort of like a revolutionary spirit uh again informs all these sort of like right-wing chuds who consider napoleon a great man and a model to follow and i'm pretty sure a lot of people think that trump running again in 2024 is like napoleon returning from elba uh, except his coup was a bloodless coup, whereas Trump is promising to have people executed. Yeah, he's gonna. The blood's gonna run run in the street. I'm gonna have a 13th Fontenier in every city in America. But but the the thing those guys don't get about Napoleon, um, and this is obviously not depicted in in either of the uh, films we've principally talked about, is is that I mean Napoleon invented in many ways the modern bureaucratic state that these guys hate so fucking much that they think is such a contravention of personal liberty. Napoleon came in, I mean, the Bourbons had, you know, had centralized the court and, and France and England in, in particular had, had kind of, and some of the Italian um, uh, city states had, had kind of begun to create sort of things more resembling like modern institutions. But, you know, I mean, Napoleon was like the first European to really, set in place something that is like a recognizably modern administrative state, you know, with, with a kind of like meritocratic hiring and promotion with, um, with a whole, you know, the Napoleonic code as like a totally uniform national uh, code for the administration of, of justice. Like all of these kind of like, uh, uh, characteristics of like an admin, a bureaucratic and administrative state. There's a word. There's a reason the word bureaucracy is French. Um, were were create were 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 set in place. You know, during uh, the French Empire during during Napoleon's reign, or or reached a more evolved form during that period. So it's just again, it's like so. It's funny and sad and and so illiterate. You know, for these these poor basement dwelling dweebs who like didn't get their, got their history from like role playing games and not from like actually reading books right? yeah. you know, and, and, and getting so head up about someone who is effectively the opposite of, of what they claim to stand. Napoleon confiscated all of the privately held weapons in Paris like he's he's literally coming for your guns (laughs) what i got from ridley scott's napoleon too was how hilariously everything always returns to 
the monarchy in France, that Napoleon's rise was to get rid of the actual monarchy. They were all beheaded. And then within about 15 years, he declares himself emperor and <laughs> brings back the monarchy. <laughs> yes. Although uh, uh, the um, bo- both Waterloo and Napoleon um, uh, inspired casting of uh, of the uh, of uh, Louis XVII. Um, uh, Orson Welles <laughs> in Waterloo in a fantastic cameo, truly fantastic little cameo, and 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 Ian McNeese, who I adore, um, yes, in in Ridley Scott's Napoleon. I mean, he he's very. I was happy to see him again. I, I was. I am every time I see him on the screen. Um, I I am thrilled, and even though this was. Uh, truly a, a, a day on set, a, a real cameo appearance from basically one scene. Um, I, I really enjoyed see, seeing him. Uh, he, he physically embodies that character of the restore of the, just the big restored bourbon <laughs> in a way that few other actors could. Also uh, to, to be noted, uh, the contempt that Scott has is, for this character is that uh, after two and a half hours, Napoleon's death scene is him just falling over. And that's it. <laughs> I mean, that also, and shot, shot from behind at a absolutely flat angle. It's just like, I mean, it is like truly something out of like, out of a comedy sketch in a, on, a, on television. Like it's just yeah. a flat angle of this guy sitting on a bench from behind and then him just slowly rotating out the frame. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was like the unintentionally funny ending of Godfather Three. Just like boom, it just hits the ground. The end. The other scene that I was kind of blown away by was that scene where uh, Napoleon's army is arresting all his internal enemies to seize power. The military walk in on this man who's having breakfast with his <laughs> wife. <laughs> yes. And, and he, he yells, I will not go with you. I am eating a succulent breakfast. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, did really Scott just make a direct reference to that viral video from Australia <laughs> known as Democracy Manifest of that man being arrested outside a restaurant? And he's like, arrest me for what? Eating a meal? A succulent Chinese meal <laughs> it's like Ridley are you, that's a deep cut I, I, I was so impressed that, this, that a 200 million dollar movie has an in joke about the uh, succulent meal guy the succulent Chinese meal guy uh, uh, maybe that was a David uh, David Scarpa uh, contribution yeah. to, to the screenplay <laughs> that's true gentlemen this is democracy manifest have a look at the headlock here. See that chap over there? Get your hand off my penis! This is the bike who got me on the penis before. Get some cups. Why did you do this to me? Get some cups. For what reason? What is the charge? Eating a meal? A succulent Chinese meal? And you, sir, are you waiting to receive my limp penis? Now get your hands off me. Ta-da! And farewell. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about Waterloo, uh, directed by Sergei Bondarchuk. You were telling me that I should watch his big war and peace film. Yes. You, it's, which I guess Napoleon also appears in briefly. Briefly, yeah. Um, I mean, he, he appears in war and peace quite a lot, um, but he, 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 he is in, in the movie version as well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, another one of those, another movie 
obviously made as a kind of as uh, in the uh, you know propaganda interests of the Soviet state, but I could probably say the same thing about you know Marvel movies for the U.S. So mm-hmm. so there you go. I don't I don't mean that to put it down, but a, a movie that was also just like lavishly funded and supported by the Soviet state um, itself. I was reading about on uh, just about the preparation for Waterloo and about not just the cast of extras and not just and not just the amount of earth moving and crop planting and landscaping and tree moving and building construction that they did, but even the way that they shot it, like they built an aerial like tramway to run all the way over the uh the battlefield set that so that they could that they could shoot like moving dolly shots on this tracked camera they had a helicopter which this is and the helicopter shots in 1970s movies but still this was only 1970 um they had cameras all over the place just uh just like this the scope and ambition uh of that production is alone makes it worth watching and i do i it looks great on the screen. I mean, there are some things that you can tell it's 1970, you know, like guys getting shot and, and doing the, uh, and then kind of falling over it is, is very much, uh, of its time and, and, and modern, you know, uh, stunt work and blood and gore effects are better than they were then. But, uh, but a lot of it looks great. looks like it could have been filmed yesterday. Um, the, uh, and, and it sounds like a real battle, and uh, and it feels like it feels as it feels uh, really big. In fact, it feels big in a way that none of the battle sequences in Ridley Scott's m- movie do. No, no matter, it, it it just feels like a real battle at the scale that was really fun. Yeah, seventeen thousand people who basically lived on a barracks for months and practiced actual Napoleonic drills and battle maneuvers. And they basically all got dressed up as the various soldiers they were supposed to be that day and went to the set. <laughs> and uh, the budget in 1969, when it was made, was 12 million pounds, which I found out is the equivalent today of $250 million. Well, I don't, uh, nobody was spending that kind of money 50 years ago on movies. No. Well, except for, <laughs> except for the uh, government of the Soviet Union, apparently. Um, <laughs> and supposedly it was actually... It, because of the fact that they that they filmed so much of of that movie in the Soviet Union in the USSR, um, the you know the costs were much lower than they would have been for doing production in 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 a Western country, um, even in a place like Italy at that time, which was a pretty cheap place still to make movies. Um, so if they had if they had tried to film it um, in in the West in in the US or or in Western Europe. It, could have cost twice that much. So really, really incredible scale of, of production. It, it was produced in 1970. Um, but uh, so much about the production design, you know, is e- easily up to the standards of, of prestige film today. Like I'm just thinking about the quality of the costumes in it. I mean, not, not that costuming wasn't sophisticated in the 60s and 70s but but you saw a lot of stuff that looked like costumes still you know that that real like historical verisimilitude stuff that looks like it's made of 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 real period materials and and that has the the sheen of wear on it and everything it was really really just impressive the amount of care given to that that sort of detail in in the production of that film 
one big visual difference between the two films is that Ridley Scott's doing his usual bleached bypass approach where all the colors have been drained out. Whereas uh, in Waterloo, the, the, the French flag and the British army, uh, the colors are just popping off the screen. The explosions are bright orange. The sky is, you know, beautiful clouds in the air. And uh, it's a very, very vivid portrayal of the, of the battle. And uh, I'm presuming it's very historically accurate you get a real sense of how the Waterloo battle was staged, uh, which you don't get from Ridley Scott's version, which is more action oriented. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, mean, I, I, I don't know how accurate like actual troop movements, uh, you know, were, um, but it felt like you were looking at something a little bit closer to a, to an actual um, 19th century military engagement as opposed to, I mean, that was, uh, kind of one of the other things about about the Ridley Scott movie, and I mean, he's been very clear. He's like, I don't give a shit about historical accuracy. How, how does anybody know? Who knows what happened in the past anyway? That's that's all bullshit. Um, but it, he staged all of those battle scenes like something out of a 20th century war movie. You know, even like a cavalry charges were like guys kind of going up over the top, you know, like, <laughs> like, like Wonder Woman <laughs> uh, and like kind of really crazy, unrealistic cavalry charges, having Napoleon actually lead cavalry charges, which they, they definitely <laughs> was not, was not doing. Um, and, uh, and the, the Waterloo movie is, is much clearer that it's like this you're watching these kind of masses of individuals moving in formation um and moving in concert and being directed towards this kind of larger tactical battle plan and you do get a, a real uh a real sense for the geography of that as well um plus i read that <laughs> among the other crazy things in that production they uh in order to create all the mud, because it was it rained before the Battle of Waterloo and it was super, super muddy, that they laid six miles of irrigation piping through these fields and hills in order to create the amount of mud that they needed. I mean, it's like, can you imagine? <laughs> today, today you'd fill the, the uh, you just like do it in post. <laughs> Well, there's an eye-popping shot in in this film when when the final stages of the battle before the Prussians arrived, where the British army are in their square formations, where they're you know protecting themselves. The horses uh, won't charge in front of a line so of men, so they run around it, and then they all get you know exposed their flanks and get shot. But the the shot pulls up from what I presumed was a hot air balloon, but it, I guess it was a helicopter. And it hangs about a half a mile above the earth. <laughs> and uh, I realized, I, I don't think I've ever seen that many people in a single film image before in my life. I, there I, were like 14,000 people on screen I, for that shot. I think it is the, I mean, I think that probably is the, other than like, uh, you know, actual documentary f footage of things in real life or sports stadiums or whatever. But like in terms of like an actual narrative filmmaking, that might be the most people that have ever been in a single shot <laughs> in a single frame. I mean, it, it is, it, it's wild. I mean, it's, you know, if it, when you read about the production too, you, you read that they were using, um, now, even with 14,000 extras, this was not the size of the two of, well, there were more than two, but of the opposing armies at Waterloo, but 
they were for some of the like on-screen maneuvering and some of the battle maneuvers that they show in that film, they were using relatively accurate numbers of people. So like if there was like a battalion of a couple thousand people uh, uh, moving across a field, they would put a couple thousand extras in costume and actually film it at that scale. So you could actually see that number of people moving. Um, what, what a, what a wild undertaking. And, and, and a couple of great performances in Waterloo uh, yeah. from the two leads as well. Yeah. Yeah. I loved uh, Rod Steiger in, in this film. Uh, he was kind of playing it sort of like Buddy Hackett as Napoleon. That's what I was thinking <laughs> while I was watching it. <laughs> Goodbye, my soldiers. Goodbye, my sons. My children. A lot of eyeball bulging and uh, flipping out uh, method acting kind of stuff. And all those great uh, interior monologues that sort of felt like this is a Ingmar Bergman version of Waterloo. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Interior, interior monologues from, from him and Plummer uh, at, at Wellington. Well, I liked his portrayal of Napoleon's sort of declining, um, uh, declining health um, o- over the period of, the of the battle i i thought that was interesting as well as he became um kind of in increasingly uh debilitated and and incapacitated um and uh and i liked the way that he nonetheless was portrayed as having this kind of closeness to his to his men and his troops as opposed to the aristocratic remove of Christopher Plummer's Duke of Wellington. They don't have a scene together in this film, unlike Napoleon, which puts them in the same room together, which didn't actually happen. No. They see each other through their little spy glasses, but they never actually uh, share a scene together. Plummer uh, sort of got that um, late 60s British glam rock look to him, I thought. (laughs) (laughs) The white knight. (laughs) Yeah, the thin thin white duke. Yeah, I mean, I I will say, uh, this is the one thing about the casting of Rupert Everett uh, in his current incarnation that that you you don't really get, but you definitely got from Chris Plummer in in Waterloo, is um, uh, Napoleon has had a wildly varied uh, sexual reputation, depending on whether you listen to British or or continental sources, etc. But the Duke of Wellington um, was a ladies' man. Um, he, 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 by, by, uh, reputation and account, um, he was, uh, he was smooth as hell. The ladies loved him. And, uh, you can see why, like in that early, in the early kind of ballroom scenes in Waterloo, where we kind of first meet, uh, Wellington, he radiates charm and just, you know, you can, you can just see that even though there aren't, you don't have any love scenes or anything. I mean, even the way he, he kind of interacts with the British aristocratic um, women, you can, you can see how magnetic um, he was. And, uh, and that was certainly not the case for Steiger's portrayal of Napoleon. He definitely didn't portray him as, as a suave charmer. <laughs> no. 
I also noticed there was a little anti-war message a little bit in Waterloo, where that one British soldier starts saying, why are we killing each other, <laughs> sort of thing. <laughs> it really heavy-handed. That felt like the Soviet uh, influence on the movie. I can't see Dino De Laurentiis wanting a scene like that in the movie. But <laughs> no, the other scene that I was kind of, uh, that I I, uh, I thought was a, an interesting bit of humor, but but well-played in, uh, in Waterloo is the scene where the... Um, where the soldier um, steals a pig, and 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 uh, the Duke of Wellington has forbidden the British soldiers from pillaging, but the, but they're you know it's raining and it's miserable and they're in war, and and this soldier gets a pig and hides it in his knapsack, and uh, and he gets caught, busted. It gets busted in a very wry manner, and then and then but Wellington, you know, it it the movie kind of this is it's the way it depicts his abilities as a commander. You know, he's super reserved. And, and not of the same class as his men. And they know that about him and they kind of almost like that about him. But like in that moment, he he promotes the guy. Like he kind of, he, he sort of leads the guy to believe he's about to get in trouble. And then he's like, you're promoted. And then he, he walks away and he understands that as a, a psychological motivation for his men. I, I thought that was, it was a funny scene and I thought it was well, well played uh, in Waterloo. Now, one thing that distinguishes Waterloo and Napoleon is that Waterloo tries really hard to be neutral. Like it doesn't really uh, have a negative portrayal of either the British or the French. Uh, it's trying to stay neutral. Whereas Ridley Scott's Napoleon, which is one of the reasons why it started to grow on me as it was going, was it, it's contemptuous towards Napoleon and it portrays him uh, so negatively much of the time and uh, dwells on his failures glosses over a lot of his successes. And, and, and the key point is that the very, very end of the movie is a list of Napoleon's death toll. Yeah. And not a full list either. <laughs> Although the French, if you read the French press at all, they, they, they've taken some, uh, some issue. They've taken issue with this movie generally, but, uh, but they took, they, they, they took issue with that, uh, the closing title, um, as well. Uh, but but yeah, that that's I, that's a that's a really um, good uh, good observation, and, and and actually kind of funny because I mean you, you can understand why Ridley Scott is anti-Napoleon because he's a British guy. Um, but you know you would also you would the, 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 so there's no love lost between uh, between Russia and Napoleonic France, and it's interesting that a that a movie that was directed by a, a Russian director um, and and uh, funded at least partly by the, by the Russian state um, is pretty scrupulously uh, neutral towards the, the, the two parties there. Um, you're not like rooting for Wellington, really. Um, he, he's perhaps the more likable of the two commanders, but there's nothing about like the, the French army isn't depicted as being better or worse than the British army. It's a 19th century war. What's it even about? It's like, what's it even about? There's like these various alliances of people trying to either support or stop somebody from enforcing some dynastic claim somewhere. So it's, there's, there's like no rooting interest. Also, it's funny because this was a labor of love for Dita De Laurentiis. He was trying to make this movie for 10 years. And at one stage, he was hoping to get Peter Sellers as Napoleon and Michael Caine as Wellington. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> I, I, I mean, Michael Caine as Wellington is is funny to think about, but I, I, I almost think that his like 
you know how his, how the Michael Caine has like that has the Michael Caine voice, but it's become even more the Michael Caine voice as he's gotten as he's gotten older, older and older. I think it's like I would like to see Wellington portrayed in the late Michael, well, the like extreme Michael Caine voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, Peter Sellers would have been an incredible Napoleon. Um, I feel like he's done it already. It sort of feels like something that Peter Sellers would have done as part of his career on The Goon Show, maybe, as Napoleon. Oh, yeah. And, and entirely possible. I mean, we know he can play a French guy. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, but I practically stood up and cheered during the closing credits where it says, Dino De Laurentiis would like to thank the Soviet army for their generous support of this movie. <laughs> I see. So, and I, as I was watching it, what I was thinking to myself is, you know, for, for so many years, so many years, uh, leftists allowed themselves to be boondoggled by that fake Mujahideen thing from the end of Rambo. But yeah. this is real. There is actually a, t- a in the closing credits of water of 1970s Waterloo, Dino De Laurentiis specifically thanks the fucking Red Army. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Amazing stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had to live that down when when he tried to make uh, Mandingo or Death Wish. It's like <laughs> you'd be nothing without the Soviets. That's right. I I would really recommend people watch this movie. Um, it's, uh, it's streaming. It's easy to access. I feel like it's a movie that a lot of people haven't seen. Um, and it, it is uh, entertaining from beginning to end. And in some ways probably is uh, maybe more the dad movie version of, Nap- of, of a Napoleon movie than, than Ridley's uh, is. And I, I mean that in a good way. I mean, this is a movie that, uh, Tony Soprano would um, eat, eat three Sundays in a row um, just to get through it uninterrupted. Generals gathered in their masses. Move along now. Those in power only see me as a brute, unfit for higher office. Just like witches at black masses. But I follow in the footsteps of Alexander the Great and Caesar. I'm excited about the longer cut. I would watch it for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm really curious about what I mean. Uh, the movie was about two what about two and a half hours runtime in the theater. Mm-hmm. So you know, so that is a lot of. There might this, be another ninety minutes. Of this yeah. Time. So I so the question is, um, how much of that is just going to, you know, how much of that is just like sort of more around what's already in the movie and how much of it is actually other material. Like, I do wonder if there's stuff, if there's one of the criticisms, and I think it's, it's a, it's a totally valid one and and largely correct of this movie is, I mean, someone said it was like a film version of a Wikipedia page. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And there's, there's so little like connective material between the major set pieces um, that that to some extent, you know, I I suspect that some of that is just going to get put back in. But I really do wonder if you know if there's more stuff from the if there's stuff from the Italian campaigns or if there's more of the political intriguing. Um, at, you know, especially 
um, as he's kind of preparing for the coup, or if maybe there's more in the Russian campaign. I, I will say my my husband um, is a uh, professor of Russian and uh, a scholar of Russian history and was v- very disappointed by the short shrift given to uh to the Russian campaign. Um, it, it really did pass a little bit too quickly for being basically the thing that ended the, fir- the first empire. Um, it kind of is just like, uh, he's marching into Russia, uh, the Cossacks are harassing him a little bit. He gets to Moscow, it burns down, and then he and then he goes home. And then you kind of just get told in a title card that everybody died. But I also hope that we get another five or six minutes of Joaquin Phoenix doing this sort of tranquilized Tex Avery Wolf kind of, <laughs> you know, mouth movements, looking at uh, Vanessa Kirby's boobs or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it, it's uh, the, the other thing. I, again, I, I, I got to give my uh, my uh, better half uh, credit here is he uh, he did point out. Uh, we, it, it was the two of us, and we were there with a friend. And and afterward, uh, we were in like this just giant cineplex in our town, and it's got like a, a American bar and grill kind of in it. It was too too late to cook food, so we went there to um, eat eat dinner at the bar. And he and he said, "How many establishing shots of them pulling up in front of the Chateau de Malmaison?" were there in this movie and it's true there are there have got to be at least a half dozen basically um s- similar shots of like a carriage pulling up in a in a, a in on a misty day in front of that fucking chateau <laughs> well also in house of gucci there's about 20 minutes of uh, scenes of a car pulling up in front of the gucci residence <laughs> They just kept showing the same car pulling up. <laughs> it's like, that's how to get your movie up to two and a half hours, I suppose. <laughs> I, yeah. There, uh, uh, House of Gucci had a, there's a little, for a movie that didn't feel short, um, it, it did have a lot of weird filler in it. But, you know, this movie, uh, for despite its high budget, um, certainly seems like it's going to, uh, it's going to make some money. Um, I am reasonably assured that um, Gladiator 2 is going to make some money. I mean, uh, uh, every uh, straight man uh, in the English-speaking world is going to go and see that movie, at the very (laughs) least. Uh, And, and, um, uh, but, you know, so this movie makes money, assuming that Gladiator 2 makes money. I mean, people are going to keep giving Ridley money to make movies uh, because he... And particularly, um, as we've now seen this year, the blessed and long overdue collapse of uh, of the comic book movie, although I have one proviso on that one, which is that I think uh, Aquaman 2 is going to make a billion dollars. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but with the return of the, you know, of the historical, the historical epic, uh, you know, uh, Oppenheimer making a ton of money. This movie looks like it's going to go on and make it make a ton of money. And I'm and, and even if you think this movie was kind of was kind of hacky, even if you think like you think about like Gladiator 2, like, come on, Glad- Gladiator 2, really? Like, uh, what a pleasure to go and see Gladiator 2 instead of um, uh, uh, Doctor Strange 27. 
yeah. or, or uh, Klingo, <laughs> Klingo origins. <laughs> yeah, like if you want a sprawling cinematic universe, how about 300 years of the Roman Empire? There's, there's pl- plenty you can get out of that. <laughs> Before we go, Jacob, I just want to take a moment to plug my friend and friend of the show, Ursula Lawrence's great French Republican wall calendar. She's now taking orders for the third edition. Um, can Jacob, what do you know about the <laughs> Republican calendar? Oh, can you quickly explain it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> explain it? Uh, uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, it inspired by the principles of enlightenment rationalist atheism. Um, the the French uh, after the French Revolution, the French revolutionary state. I don't think people now understand that this was a revolutionary state. Like America, like the American Revolution was a was a war of independence, but not a a full political revolution, especially not in the sense that we mean it in like the twentieth and twenty first centuries. But but the French Revolution was. I mean, it was wildly anti-clerical it swept away the vestiges of the old state it uh, is the beginning of the metric system and uh in in keeping with that spirit of revolutionary fervor they were like well let's get we should have a scientific calendar and so they created a new calendar with 10-day weeks um and they gave all the months new names (laughs) the um, 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon, you know, the Marx book everybody reads, like that's the 18th Brumaire is a, is a date in the French Republican calendar, the 13th Vendemiaire, which is when Napoleon put down riots and, and rebellion in Paris. It's the French Revolutionary calendar. So, but it's super cool. The names of all of the months are real, are, are really cool. They're derived from natural science, um, and, and botany and, and, and other sources. So, um, I, and they I, all rhyme in French too. Like they have sets of rhymes in French. Yes, yeah. Uh, it, it is. Um, it's one of those. It starts in October or something. I think that's the beginning of the new year in France. It's the sort of thing that you know, like uh, I don't know. Before, like talk, when people had longer attention spans, <laughs> they were they were able and willing to do uh, tr- truly wild, wild and crazy stuff. And I do sometimes think, uh, you know, about like our Silicon Valley overlords, you know, these people who think that they stand outside of history and that they're ushering like in a new age of human civilization. And I just think how lame those efforts are compared to like what a bunch of uh, uh, dirty French uh, directory employees were willing to do to completely change the relationship of mankind to time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's that sort of hubris where uh, Elon Musk decides to name uh, Twitter X, (laughs) which I refuse to do. Uh, But, you know, it's like, and get like, how insane are you that you think that we'll just call what it, what already exists what you want us to t- call it? <laughs> no, I mean, and that is, I mean, the French Republican calendar. I like again, it's it's super cool. Um, I would, uh, I, I I will have to uh, pick up a copy of your uh, of of your friend's uh, product when it when it's available. Um, but 
Uh, yeah, it's renaming Twitter X is like renaming Monday. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Augustus renaming months, like, uh, fair enough. There were a lot less people in the world using the calendar back then. But like, you, you, you got to at this point, ha- yeah. hang it up. Yeah, yeah, like once there's a printing press in existence and literacy, you don't like reinvent the calendar. (laughs) Like the closest we've come to a reinvention of a calendar is fiscal years. That's That's right. Jacob, do you want to tell our listeners where they can find you and what you're up to? Uh, Yeah, Uh, well, you can still find me on Twitter. Um, I I do have a legacy account there at Jake Backpack. Um, You can find me on Blue Sky Social. Um, as Jacob Bacharach. Um, you can find my books uh, generally wherever fine books are sold. And uh, I uh, publish book reviews and articles in a variety of places, uh, New Republic, New York Magazine. Um, I usually post about them when I have something new coming out. I'll put a link to that in the show description, as well as Ursula's French Republican wall calendar. And also you and I... Uh, I was planning on doing a show about the prisoner with you that I'd like to do again in the new year. I got sidetracked with my big Miami vice series. There's uh, only so much epic, important television that can fit in <laughs> one year. Well, I think we've, we've uh, laid a good groundwork for it in talking about um, establishing shots of cars pulling up in house of Gucci, because if there is uh, one show in the history of television that does more with uh, a with uh, a, an establishment of a car driving around, it is a prisoner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a great show. We'll, we'll, we'll do that in the new year. Jacob Backrack, thank you so much for joining me again. Lovely to talk to you as always. See you soon. It was great to be here. Before we go, just a reminder that we do have a Patreon and patrons get access to bonus episodes every month. To become a patron, please go to patreon.com slash junkfilter. And please follow us on Twitter, at Junk Filter Pod. We'll have another episode of the program in the next few days. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken, and thank you for listening. Je résonne en baiser le long de ta poitrine, perdu dans l'avalanche de mon cœur égaré. Qui es-tu? Où es-tu? Par les pleurs, par les rires de ton ombre effarée. Je résonne en baiser Dans mon esprit tout divin Je me perds dans tes yeux Je me noie dans la vague De ton regard amoureux Je ne veux que ton âme Divagant sur ma peau Une fleur, une femme Dans ton cœur, Roméo Je ne suis que ton nom Le souffle lancinant